Hi, I'm Arlen Walker, and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland. Today, I'm going to talk about RPG design and crunchiness in RPGs and sort of my thoughts about system design and system mastery and a number of other things. At least I think that's what I'm going to talk about. I um, don't edit these at all, really. So if I talk about something else, well, you'll just have to listen to find out. So stay tuned. Hey, Arlen. Uh, yeah, another great episode. Um, the I Ching. I've had a copy of that kicking around for ages. God knows where it is now, but um, it never even occurred, occurred to me that it's it's basically just a big random table uh, full of kind of plot ideas and events and story seeds. Uh, yeah, that would be a great resource if I could uh, find the damn thing. Anyway, speak soon. Yeah, the I Ching. And in fact, I think you could actually do something interesting with almost any um, type of kind of fortune-telling system, basically. Because um, unless you believe that it has the actual capacity to tell fortunes, which if you do, that's great for you. Um, if you do not believe that, then what you have is a system that is designed to create a list of events that are generic enough to fit into most types of things um, in order. So like a, a tarot reading, you could totally, I, um, I think you could do something really interesting with like... Um, a tarot reading for a, a character while working on a novel and have that be sort of how you progress their storyline or use um, the I Ching the way that Philip K. Dick did or any number of other kind of fortune telling, you know, casting. I, I don't know anything about casting runes, but um, it seems like, or knuckle bones, but um, that seems like that would be really cool. And you could even have that be kind of like a, a meta plot element too. I don't know. Um, but yeah, the, what you have essentially is a list or a, a random selector for events that are going to fit into a narrative um, with any type of... Um, future reading, fortune telling type system. And so you could totally use pretty much any of them to come up with a, a story or to um, have that be your random story generator for a character um, or for a, a plot or for something like that. Um, you could also perhaps, I don't know. I'm trying to think of other things you could do. One of the things that you might think about is um, Robin Laws has a book, um, Mapping the Plot, I think, Hammering the Plot. I don't remember exactly, but basically he's got a um, idea about how to plot out stories, um, and he uses a couple of oh no hamlet's hit points is the generic is the one that uses um hamlet and casablanca and dr no and basically maps out how the plot actually works in game terms and kind of ascending moments and descending moments and that sort of stuff and i don't necessarily agree with everything in it and i think you might get more out of some other kind of plot mapping 
literary theory type stuff, but it's a great introduction to the concept, certainly. So yeah, Hamlet's Hit Points by Robin Laws, um, worth checking out. And then read some Northrop Fry, I guess, because Northrop Fry is really cool. And there's a lot of really interesting things that he has to say about um, the nature of narrative and storytelling and all of that sort of stuff. And he's, he's always an author that I, there's a couple of authors that I kind of continually go back to, to search for ideas or things like that. And um, Northrop Fry is one. Roberta Colasso is another. Um, I really want to figure out how to adapt one of Julian Grack's stories into a game, although I have no idea how you would do that. Um, He's another personal favorite. Um, Pascal Quignard always has really fascinating things to say about um, truth in the world and all of that sort of stuff. And anyway, now I'm just listing authors. So I'm going to pause it here and collect my thoughts. And we'll get into the discussion of um, crunch in RPGs. So crunch. One of the things that I think is that there are sort of different versions of crunch there's essentially crunch that is in the main way that the game works and then there's crunch that is exceptions to that main way that the game works and what i mean is to say that um some games have a more complicated core mechanic other games have a whole bunch of rules exceptions and specific circumstantial rules and all of that sort of stuff um so, for instance, Pathfinder in its core mechanic is fairly straightforward. It's roll a d20 and add any modifiers. Um, roll it against a target DC or against the, the defense, the AC of an enemy um, if you're trying to hit them. But... Pathfinder has about a billion different circumstantial particular rules for, well, here's how this situation works, this situation works, this situation works, that adds a lot of the crunch. And my comparison is to something like the One Ring. The One Ring has what I think is a crunchier core mechanic in a lot of ways in that it's a, it's a more complicated core mechanic because it's rolling the 12 sided feet die plus a number of six sided dice based on the skill with the certain thing you roll that and you get a number that um, is how successful and you compare that number to a target number to see whether or not the um, character succeeded or failed. That's a little more complicated than just, oh, it's a d20 plus or minus something. Um, but one of the things that I really like about the One Ring is that everything that you do is built off of that core mechanic. And there aren't, once you kind of understand how the game works, there are a whole lot less exceptions and circumstantial modifiers and all of that sort of stuff. And I think that is where a lot of the crunch arises. And I was thinking about that partly in relation to Mutants and Masterminds 3rd Edition and DC Adventures, because I was talking about how that game has what I think is a fairly medium to high kind of crunchy level um, because even though the core mechanic is pretty simple, there's a lot of special kind of circumstantial rules or um, 
rule exceptions that take place within the game. And therefore, what you have is essentially a lot to remember and a lot to be aware of in order to play it really smoothly um, by comparison to some of these others. So, for instance, um, Prowlers and Paragons is one of the games that I have been that I overviewed and um, it has similar to the relationship between the one ring and Pathfinder. It has a little bit more complicated core mechanic in the sense that it's rolling six sided dice, looking for even sixes explode and then tallying up the total number of successes. But that core mechanic is almost never accepted or or given special circumstantial rules or things like that um, aside from really straightforward kind of GM fiat you know rulings not rules type situations and so that's sort of what I'm thinking about crunch and then it also ties into there was a discussion that I read that was about um, character advancement it's discussion on reddit and one of the things this person was talking about was the way that different, core mechanics tie in to character advancement. Because one of the things about a D20 is that each of those 20 sides is just as likely to show up as any other. And what that means is that, for instance, plus six to plus seven as a modifier, a D20 plus modifier, that plus six to plus seven is remains meaningful unless the DCs get really, really low. If you're still working with like DCs of 10 or 15 plus six or plus seven still plus six to plus seven is a noticeable 5% difference. Whereas with something like a dice pool, if you have like say 2d6 plus modifier, for instance, for barbarians of Lemuria, one of the things that that does is that that plus six to plus seven, once you hit plus five or plus six, generally you've, essentially moved the core of the bell curve all the way past whatever point your success point is. And so it matters a lot less. And one of the things I was thinking about this was sort of two things. One was, well, if you like dice pools more, you should play with them. And especially, I think that dice pools are really cool. And and one of the things that I was thinking about was that in some ways, choosing a core mechanic that you like less so that it is available for advancement seems a little silly to me in the sense that you are privileging the potential fun that you could have in the future over the fun that you could be having right now with a core mechanic that you like more. And that's also sort of an answer to the discussion about, um, power level up and power increases in mutants and masterminds. If you love the way that that mutants and mastermind system works, don't worry about the fact that giving out more power points will make the characters into galaxy defenders. Eventually Um, you should just play the game that you enjoy. Um, And part of that for me is that I am not huge into the, great, big, long, huge campaigns, all of that sort of stuff. I am generally more of a a one-shots and short campaigns kind of guy. 
But that's just, uh, I'm definitely rambling here, but I'm just sort of coming up with some ideas about kind of what I think you should do in terms of playing RPGs. And that is basically play the system that you're interested in, not necessarily worrying about how the system is going to play in the next session or in the next five sessions or the next 10 sessions, because honestly, it's really hard to get 10 sessions of a game together. Um, which is not to say, and it's not to say that you shouldn't kind of think about that, but that um, it can be really difficult to put together a 10 session or a 30 session or a 50 session campaign with the expectation that you're going to actually kind of play regularly and all of that sort of stuff. And with that in mind, I think there is sometimes an overemphasis on broken advancement rules. For instance, there was talk um, in this discussion, there was talk about the Dragon Age RPG, the, the fantasy age system, and how at higher levels it basically just breaks. And I, one of the things I was thinking about is like, yeah, that may be true, but how often do you actually get through to that point in these games and to me my experience with playing has been a whole lot more one shots and short campaigns that fizzle out than it is um the sort of thing where you would really want to privilege the advancement rules in that way um but that's just me that's kind of my thoughts i'd love to hear what your thoughts are do you play huge long campaigns that depend on really good advancement rules or are you more of a one-shot sort of person or do you want to play those huge long campaigns and never get a chance to i don't know and part of that also is the sort of games that i have talked about playing so i talked about playing era with colin and we played one session and it was super fun and i don't think either of us feel like if we never play another session of that, we somehow horribly missed out on the game. We had fun with the game, playing it, and that was that. It's it's now completed, and we could play it again, but we'll see if we end up playing it again. We are definitely playing The One Ring on Saturday, this coming Saturday, so um, I think we're going to stream that on the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel like we did the last one, and so I have some exciting things going on in that session that I've planned out. But yeah, this is just, um, I think, and oh, well, I'm going to pause the recording here and then I'm going to talk about a question that I got on Twitter from uh, Matt of Jowsom's Den. And that'll give a little bit of idea of what I'm doing for the rest of Super June. So the question I got from Matt of Jowsom's Den was asking specifically if there were any standouts in the games that I had overviewed so far. And what I sort of said to him was, well, there's been a number of kind of interesting things, and here's the sort of different things I'm thinking about. Although I think at its core, the one that is the biggest standout, the one that I keep thinking about so far is Cold Steel Wardens, um, which is not surprising to people who know me, but I really like the, the kind of tone and the aesthetic. And it's a dice pool system, which I really like dice pools. Um, I haven't gotten a chance to play it yet, but it would be really cool to play it. I think actually that Arrow would make for a really good supers 
system. Um, I think Prowlers and Paragons and Worlds in Peril, they're both really simple, but they'd be great for one-shots. Um, not sure if I would run Mutants and Masterminds third. I think I would play it just fine, but it seems to me that my kind of tolerance for crunch when I run games is a little different than when I play them. Um, but, you know, I could end up diving into those games and getting really into it and be uh, totally into that level of crunch. I was not so totally into that level of crunch for the Pathfinder campaign that I played. But, you know, I feel like I could get enough in that I would be ready to to run it and play it and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think, unfortunately, that the four-color hack ranks pretty low on the the scale it just doesn't seem to be quite as uh good as some of these other ones fallen justice is also really cool i think i prefer cold steel wardens to it just a little bit um but i'm not entirely sure um if that would be a a permanent choice phase rip i'm having a ton of fun with the dungeon musings phase rip game um so phase rip in phase four i don't know if i would run it um not well, just because similarly, there's a lot of stuff to the the phase rip, the actual phase rip books that um, anyway, what I was going to say is that that's sort of a very, very brief overview of my thoughts of the game so far. I think if you want to run gritty Iron Age, Cold Steel Wardens, and if you want to run four color Prowlers and Paragons, both of them are really great games from everything that I can tell. They seem really cool. I um, would love to play either of those games. But I have a whole bunch more games to talk about. I have um, 21 on the list. And I have done 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 so far. So um, we'll see how many of them I actually get to or not. Uh, there are a couple of them that I think I might not end up actually doing. Um, but that's to give you an idea that there are a number of others that I want to talk about. And um, I want to let you know that if all of these overviews are way too much for you and you are um, having trouble keeping track of these games, well, I am going to do an end of June kind of wrap-up episode of the podcast where I talk about the overall standouts, what I really liked, what I really didn't like, what sort of worked about doing Super June and what didn't, because um, I have some ideas about that too. But anyway, I'm going to do a wrap-up episode that will give you all sorts of information so that you can make the best decision that you um, can out of the information that I have put out here on the podcast. So I think it's time for the outro. So a little bit more about Blade of the Iron Throne because I think it's so cool and I'm going to talk a little bit more. So I set up this idea of two samurai, both of them using the high-class bodyguard template, wearing just cloth katanas, and then they have... Um, a melee pool of 15 with their katanas with reflex of six and proficiency of nine. So I ran three different fights. It's um, 
basically, I think in each one, the first samurai won. Um, but the first one, we have a samurai. The first samurai cuts at zone three, which is across the belly. Samurai two attempts to counter. The cut is stopped, but not actually countered. The first samurai cuts at zone four, which is across overhand towards the neck and upper shoulders. Samurai one strikes, creates a level four wound on Samurai two's face, basically cutting across his face and into his jaw. Samurai two is in shock and ends up being gutted by Samurai one. Next encounter, Samurai One also cuts towards Zone Three across the belly. Samurai Two counters this time, putting more of his energy into a counter. Samurai Two is able to counter effectively and transitions into a disarm move. Samurai Two attempts to disarm, but Samurai One parries the blow. Samurai One taking seizing initiative again cuts at zone four again samurai two attempts to counter again but is unable to effectively counter and samurai one cuts through samurai two's shoulder and it's essentially the end of the fight final match samurai one cuts at zone three samurai two attempts a master strike with all of his energy a master strike allows you to block and strike in the same half of the round. And so it's very, very deadly for taking down one opponent. Samurai 1 swings out and gets his blade just under Samurai 2's blade and guts him. So part of the point here is that these are three different mechanical scenarios, all of which had essentially the same result, Samurai 1 killing Samurai 2. But what we had are three different ways for it to happen, which had mechanical differences between them. And any of them could have gone the other way if the rules had been a little different. There were some that I expected to be fairly different than this. Anyway, um, that's just to give you some idea of the way that this works. Part of it is that these combats ran really, really quickly. Um, you can tell the the longest one was essentially three exchanges. Um, but yeah, pretty deadly stuff and very cool and very kind of, you know, setting the tone of the world. So I'm hoping to put together a group to play um, some duels with Blade of the Iron Throne. And maybe I was talking with um, Colin Spikepit about it. And one of the ideas that we came up with was that we could use another game called A Single Moment, um, which is about two samurai meeting who have a history together and um, maybe use that to try to do do that as the sort of setup for the duel, and then the duel itself in Blade of the Iron Throne would be really fun. But anyway, what I was just getting at is that those are three slightly different combats, all of which had mechanical differences. Instead of just being roll a d20 and describe how your hit worked, and 
you'll notice there was no hit point degradation on any of those fights. Every strike that connected really mattered because these characters weren't wearing any armor. If they had been wearing armor, um, then they probably could have shrugged off a strike or two, a minor one, and really been dependent on um, a single deadly strike that had a lot of power behind it. Um, but as it is really even a, a relatively minor success would turn into a pretty deadly strike with one of these katanas. So um, yeah, no, none of that silly hit point wear down things. And these are both very, very well-trained and I believe played pretty well characters. I tend to think that I played them pretty well. I didn't really play favorites on either of them, but um, yeah, to give you some idea of how this system works, that's what high-level combat can look like. It's none of this smashy back and forth. It's all, you know, that one single strike to cut the enemy down. Anyway, there's some other cool things about Blade of the Iron Throne that I will probably talk about soon. Um, but I really wanted to share the set of three combats that I ran with you guys. Um, so yeah, so that's the episode. Um, it's a bit of another fragmentary one, but apparently people like that. Thanks for listening. Hit me up on Twitter at cows from Powis. Hit me up here on anchor live from Pelham's wasteland. Otherwise I've been Arlen Walker and I've been live from Pelham's wasteland. See you next time.